Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Game Before the Money podcast. I'm Jackson Michael. With me this episode, Upton Bell, talking about the 2023 NFL season. He and I have been talking about this year together. And Upton wanted to do a show about it. Always excited to have Upton on. Most of you know Upton already from this program. He was the director of player personnel for the Baltimore Colts in the 1960s under Don Shula. Also held that role when the Colts won Super Bowl V. And he later became general manager of the New England Patriots. Upton's father, Burt Bell, founded the Philadelphia Eagles and was commissioner of the NFL starting in 1946. So Upton has been around the National Football League pretty much his entire life. Please visit thegamebeforethemoney.com and know that the Game Before the Money Oral History Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit and you can make donations at thegamebeforethemoney.com. Let's chat the 2023 season and of course, a little bit of history with Upton Bell. Let's chat some football here. And Upton, you know, you've been watching the NFL since the 1940s. Yes. Yeah. I got got queries on it again today. How does this season rate? In my opinion, watching all of these years, that the NFL, this year in particular, although it's been approaching this year, Michael, that the NFL is as mediocre as I've ever seen it. And I lay at the doorstep of the players' decision in negotiating with the owners in the new collective bargaining agreement a couple of years ago that there'd be less practice time at training camp, there'd be less hitting, uh, you know, less hitting during the season. My God, I mean, by by this time you would think that they would really be ready to hit and play, but they're not. Yeah, it's really, you know, and that makes sense. You know, if you practice something, you're going to get better at it. There's the whole, um, I'm not, I can't exactly remember if it's the 10,000 hours practice or the 2,000 hours practice or whatever it is to become an expert, but the less you practice, um, the the less uh, great you're going to be. There's I, I remember also a uh, famous musician once said, if, I think it was Doc Severinsen, if I don't practice one day, nobody really notices. If I don't practice two, I notice. And if I don't practice three, the audience notices. Well, what what you're looking at now is maybe the worst offensive line play that I've ever seen. And I'm going way back on this. And the reason for that is, and let's face it, you can talk about all the great quarterbacks, the great receivers, how wide open the game is now and everything else. But the offensive line play is the worst I've seen it. And the reason is twofold. One, they're developed in a different way. They're not in, in, in college. Everything is total RPO. 
everything is, is, is the running quarterback. They don't sit back and pass protect. Now, when you get them into the pros under the new collective bargaining agreement, where they get very little practice time, what do you expect? I mean, I, I think that the NFL needs to go back to, to NFL Europe, which I was very familiar with years ago, where they developed players over there and they took their time. Now, when you look, I mean, I, I watch 10 games this weekend. Just take the two games that were on Monday night at the same time on ESPN, the Giants-Packers game, and the dreadful, and I mean dreadful, Dolphins w- without Tyreek Hill, and and they're, they're playing the equally as dreadful team from Nashville. Not only were there injuries in the games, but the quarterbacks are getting killed. No, no wonder there's something like, what, 20 quarterbacks out? So go right back to what you and I were talking about, the offensive line play and the lack of, of, of training. I, I think that even though the owners will deny it, that the NFL is, is really at a breaking point about what's happening right now. Well, and you make a great point because when you go back to the 70s and 80s pre-free agency, you, know, you could predict what teams were going to be potential winners just by the amount of time their offensive line had played together. And that's that's a big overlooked piece of this is if if you don't know what the lineman next to you is going to be doing, that creates a lot of confusion and that, that can create a lot of breaking down of the offensive line like you're talking about. Well, you, you know, the thing everybody's talking about, uh, how difficult it is to find a quarterback. I think it's even more difficult to find good offensive linemen. I mean, th- th- it used to be that every team had at least two or three pretty good offensive linemen. They didn't make a lot of money, but now they've become like the California Golden Condor. I mean, they're a rarity. <laughs> so they're getting, they're getting, Michael, they're getting paid big money now because Finally, teams have realized, particularly in today's game, where the quarterback is the most important person, that if you don't have any blocking, and and we saw examples of it again uh, over the weekend, Kansas City game, Buffalo, the Patriots, I mean, the Patriots might as well have you and I out there. (laughs) Well, and now it's also been a a lower-scoring season. Do you think the offensive line play has to deal with that or what do you what do you think is contributing to that overall one wipes the other uh, i think it's the offensive line but also look at how many teams are playing with second and third quarterbacks cleveland has four and they're back to joe flacco who was a quarterback before roosevelt was elected <laughs> <You know? laughs> so look at it i mean it's it's a mess and look at the injuries. Why are the quarterbacks getting injured? Well, every year, there are some quarterbacks that got hurt. But 20? I mean, look, look, at, look at the teams that have been playing without their top quarterbacks. Minnesota. The Titans. And who, who knows 
what could happen to the Dolphins with with their situation? They've got more players hurt. I mean, even in the middle of the game, guys are, are offensive linemen getting hurt. Then they put two other people, and they 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 can't along with the Titans. The Titans couldn't even get the count right. I mean, you're literally looking at semi-pro football under the guise of being NFL. And I want to make clear here. I think this is a good time to, time to bring up as, as as we you know criticize this particular season. You know, last year we were talking about different things. Um, last year was 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 a much better season, and um, in fact, all previous years that I can think of have been. This this year has really um, exposed a lot of the the issues in the NFL. And um, you know, you talk about quarterback injuries. You know, week one, Aaron Rodgers. We spent the whole off season. Wondering how Aaron Rodgers is going to do with the Jets, or rather how the Jets are going to do with Aaron Rodgers, and he's out on the first, second play of the season. And why is the reason that he's out? Because the left tackle, I think it was, instead of dropping back and pass protected, tried to, to cut the defender, and the defender came right in on the defenseless Aaron Rodgers. I mean, even the teaching of the technique it the, I mean, the Jets had going into the season a very, very average to below average offensive line. So why is, is the offensive line coach, or whoever the hell it is, teaching somebody to protect? You know, it's like the Brinks money truck. You're, you're going to protect Aaron Rodgers, and you're going to, on the first play, you're going to cut the guy instead of getting in front of him? So he has a clear path in destroying Rodgers and destroying their season. I, I blame, of course, the bad offensive line, but I blame a line coach for teaching that technique. And I believe that Rodgers told them that isn't something they should be doing anyway. So we, 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 look, let's, let's take this witch's brew of Injured quarterbacks, not enough linemen to go around, along with maybe some stupid coaches. Let's throw them in the Well, and, you know, coaching has changed a lot in the past, you know, certainly 10 years and possibly even fewer. There's a lot of reliance on analytics now, and we're seeing more going for it on fourth down than ever before, which it, going forward on fourth down, I I'm going to throw my own personal opinion in here. Going forward on fourth down rather than kicking field goals to get points on the board is driving me crazy. There have been teams I've seen lose games because they decided to go for it. They lost a lot of time off the clock. They ended up kicking a field goal anyway, or they didn't score. Period, and the one-score game, they lose. There should be a uh, an injection. It's like getting your COVID shot uh, against having analytics play a major role in football. For baseball, that's fine. That's a game of statistics. Football is a completely different game. It is a game of feel. The best coaches are the ones who have a feel in a, in a crucial situation. 
even if it gets gets wrong at times, you have to take into account, forget the damn analytics. Take into account how well has your club been doing on short yardage situations? What is the situation in the game? Should you be kicking a field goal and getting the three versus going for it? Are you going for it down on the goal line versus going for it out on the 50-yard line? All of that has something to do with years of experience, years of being in crucial situations, and a general feel for your own football team, more so than what the other team is going to do. Have we in the past been able to make it on fourth and one wherever we are? And that's an excellent point. Yeah, excellent point. Stan Campbell in Detroit. How many times, whether it's analytics or not, when he's on his own 20 or 30-yard line and he goes for it on fourth and one or fourth and two, and the other teams know that he's going to do it. How stupid is that? That's the other thing that's that's not talked about in the analytics discussion is, one, you don't know how well the defense is prepared for it, and they've, they're preparing for it better than ever. Now you got fourth down defenses, which you didn't have before. You know, that's not calculated in analytics. And like you were talking about before, what's the personnel right now? How's my quarterback doing? How, how are people physically doing in this game? How's my offensive line? Has anybody got a little nagging injury that they picked up during the game? All of these are factors that are, like you said, much different than baseball. Dallas's coach, uh, you know, he swears by analytics. And, and maybe that's the way Jerry Jones will fire him if he doesn't make it to the Super Bowl this year. Analytics tells me it's time to get rid of you. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it is, uh, we've gotten to a point in the game where football, which is still blocking and tackling and, and basic in its nature in many ways, to now wanting it to be a total track meet, uh, a, a seven-on-seven seven, uh, game. A game that's played strictly on the outside. And therefore, when you really have to dig down and go back to a running game, how many people have it? They don't have it. It's not in their repertoire. That's one thing that I've pointed out with the bill specifically over the past few years, is their inability to run out the clock when necessary. And you're seeing other teams having that now, too. And and the other thing that, that we have been talking about in that um, kind of aspect is clock management also seems to be at an all-time low right now, or at least from what I've seen. Well, it, it, it is. But you have people that are getting into the game, and I know that the bright new faces, but the Belichicks and others are going to be phased out uh, because they haven't really uh, kept, well, they probably kept up with it, but they eschew what, what has become the modern game. But with that, like I've, I've been watching Hard Knocks, where they now follow a team during the year, and the latest Einstein of football, the coach at the Dolphins, and and listening to, uh, hearing all about his, his clothes and kind of his offbeat style and who he is. And it, it looked to me 
up to that disaster this past Monday night, like some kid in sneakers trying to lecture people on <laughs> Einstein's theory of relativity. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, and that's that's true. You know, um, um, you look at you look at the old days, and and you know Landry with his suit and fedora, and and Lombardi always in a suit, and and you know the the coaches were much better dressed in previous. Hallis, you know, always always dressing up for games. Um, I think some of it has to do with with the NFL contracts with with certain. Uh, certain clothing manufacturers, but, um, yeah, you know, the, the head coach, some of the fans are better dressed than, than, uh, than some of the head coaches we see now. Look, look at, look at our latest coach in Miami, our new guru. And you look at him on the sideline and, and to me, he looks like the water boy instead of the head coach. (laughs) And, and I know looks can be deceiving. When I came in as general manager of the Patriots, half the players there couldn't kind of believe it. I looked like I was younger than them. Well, and but, and you can't you you worked for Don Shula at the beginning of his career, and he was thirty three years old, thirty four. Thirty four. But I had been around the game. I understood it. I didn't try to be this young uh, a guru, genius, whatever you want. But what I look at is who has command of the room. Now, in Miami's case, he will have command of the room as long as he wins. And I watched uh, after the game to the next installment of the of the Dolphins, and uh, he looked like a little boy trying to in some ways assure the Dolphins uh, their disastrous defeat, uh, being up 14 points with, I think, less than seven minutes in the game. He he wasn't a reassuring figure to me. If I was standing in there as a player, you know, I I would expect more, you know, whether it's a Belichick or or even Mike, Mike Vrabel, who, to me, represents whatever his weaknesses are he represents to me what a pro coach should be today modern up to date with everything but still really a tough ass i wouldn't want to screw around with him the the guy that made the fumble one of the many fumbles on the kickoff return he's over in front of this is while the game's going on he's over on in front of Vrabel as Vrabel is is letting him know uh, what the situation is and he better be prepared next time. I looked at it and I said, how many coaches do you know today that aren't into their, you know, their, their board there in front of them telling them every play to call? How, how many of them would take the position of Vrabel? Yet I think that Football, and I'm not looking to go back to the pigskin days of the 40s or 50s or even the early 2000s. I'm just saying that it is a game where maybe hockey, closer, a little bit closer to it, where you better be able to, to have control of that room, as much control as you can get. And that 
is an element that might be missing. Let's uh, let's kind of talk a little bit about uh, some of the better things that have happened this year. And um, to me, I haven't watched as as many games as you have this year. But um, the best game that I think I've seen this year was the Bills at Eagles game. What games stand out to you as as being some of the better games this year? That was one of them. Even the the Forty Niners dismantling of the Eagles was kind of interesting, but I, but I loved it. I didn't expect to see it be a very, very good game was the Dallas game on Monday night, a couple of weeks ago. I mean, I, I, I didn't, I didn't expect it to be a close game, but it was, it went down to the very end. I'm for any type of game. And I will say this for two games that I said, I'm not watching them. This past Monday night, only elements in the game it, itself. Danny DeVito's long lost cousin, uh, the quarterback of the New York Giants. I mean, what a great story. And it looked like half of the Godfather or Tony Soprano was in the box with his family and his agent. And the comeback uh, against the Packers, who looked like they were starting to be a real contender, at least for a wild card spot. And and the other game, I beat Tennessee down 14 points, and that kid brings them back. And by the way, Miami without Tyreek Hill, to me, is just another team. Tyreek Hill is probably one of the most spectacular playmakers we've seen in a long time. Ever, ever. He's the only receiver I'd say he's the most valuable player in the NFL. I mean, you you saw just exactly what happened to Tunga Baloa when he's out. Their whole game was off. That offense doesn't run with all of the speeches they have in the running backs and two of the ways the year he's had. Without Hill, without that threat, Without teams having to say, we, we need two people to cover this guy, and we still can't cover him. Miami, to me, is is a mirage. I don't think they're going to get the number one seed, and I think they could fade if he isn't around. So that game, when you – I mean, Tennessee had nothing to play for. And, and the again, with all the injuries, I like some of these young quarterbacks. I like Levis. He brought them back. A lot of balls there. And to see that comeback in two games that I thought were kind of meaningless, they're, they're kind of the little gems. And, of course, I thought the best game of the year as far as attention, as far as the matching of two great quarterbacks, two great, young great quarterbacks, was the Kansas City disaster <laughs> against Buffalo. And maybe one of the dumbest plays I've ever seen, lining up totally offsides and then bitching and screwing up. Probably I have never, since the '40s, seen a better play than that than that Kelsey reception and then throwing it like a quarterback he was in high school for a touchdown. I mean, you'll never see that again. But you'll also probably never see again maybe you maybe you will now 
because everybody's so on to it, but seeing how stupid Kansas City was and and then Andy Reid complaining, well, the official usually lets me know. But you know what? That the receiver was lined up. I mean, you can see it. It, it wasn't even a little bit offside. It was totally offside. Yeah, and you know, I had seen that penalty called twice against Green Bay in a game earlier this year. And the other thing is, and and this is something I'd like to kind of get your opinion on too. The other thing is, that receiver is more on the line of scrimmage than everyone on the offensive line except for the center. Everybody else is back off. The offensive the, the offensive linemen are back off of the line of scrimmage in this V formation that's become so in vogue. He clearly could see that he was offside. If you can't see you're offside and you're at a crucial point in the game, you can look down the line and see it. This offside had been called, I think, 11 times this year because I think the officials saw over the last couple of years too many guys were lined up in the neutral zone or lined up offside, and they got to do something about it. I mean, you can't have who's the receiver and who isn't. If, if you have no rules, then the, the offensive center can be a receiver too. I mean, but, but the aftermath of it, and at, and at least Mahomes apologized uh, with it. But it won't take away from that one great play. So they didn't score. They called it back. But again, you'll be seeing that. If you and I live another 50 years, you'll see that again. That play. Everybody wants it. Because it was perfectly executed. And for Kelsey to be able to think that quickly. It was, and threw, he threw a perfect pass. He threw, he threw that pass as well as Mahomes or any quarterback I've seen this year. And he did it on the run. Turning around with his back to the defender. Back to the old school uh, halfback option like Frank Ifford or Paul Horney might have run. Or Dan Reeves was another guy who was excellent Tom Maddie. Tom, Tom Maddie, yes. That, that they, they all did. See, here is another problem. Uh, and I'm not lecturing your audience. I'm just telling you this. That in football, like in life today, anything over 10 minutes is not history. If it didn't happen now, it didn't happen. And and what people should do is go back and look. If you're a coach, I want to go back and look at games and leagues and, and the way football has developed in the past to see if there was any part of the past that I could bring forward in a game now it's changing so quickly. I mean, it's got your head swimming. It's got your head on a swivel. What happened to the running back? What happened to a game? Let, let's say that Miami is up 14, right? And, and they want to start killing the clock. But Tennessee scores quickly. What do you want to do? You want, you want to run the football. You want to take time off the clock. How many games have I watched this year and said, if they only had a running game, they'll win this game. They'll kill the clock. 
That's what it used to be. Tell me that there's no longer anything in the game that says that the running back, and again, we're back to the offensive line, can't run the clock out or run it down. It's gone. You don't have it. Nobody develops a running back anymore. That's fine. That's what the game has become. I have I have no quarrel with it. But I'll also point out, on the other hand, if you don't have any running game, what the hell do you have? Yeah, and that comes back to that clock management that we've been talking about and that we talked about earlier. And um, that's a lost art, running out the clock, another lost art. The use of timeouts is another lost art. A lot of times we see teams getting into situations where they use a couple of timeouts early in a half and then late in the half they don't have any timeouts to use when they have a chance to either put the game away um, keep the game extended if they're behind or put up more points in the first half Michael here here are a couple of things that have added to what we see today who has a feel for the game better than the quarterback? But what's happened to the quarterback is everything has been taken out of his hands. You've got an offensive coordinator and defensive coordinator. Uh, linebackers, the middle linebacker, used to call the defensive signals. You, you might as well have chat GBT in there because, <laughs> I mean, look at it. Every play is called. Yes, the great ones like Brady's and and the Mannings of the past and Mahomes and people like that, they can change the play. They can see things change. But the quarterback has to have a feel of the game. How do you have a feel of the game if you've got some robot calling into you every play? Look at them. But everybody has a wristband now. Tom Matty had a wristband because we only had four plays when we went into the to the sudden death game against uh, Green Bay. But now, my God, from from the armpit to, to the hand itself, all the plays are on there. My God, it's hieroglyphics. What the hell is going on? If somebody is sitting next to you and sitting next to me while we do the interview telling me what to say, what do I have to say? Yeah, that's true. That's a great point. You know, and, and like you said, nobody has a better feel for what's really going on than the players on the field. And the quarterback as the leader of the offense, that's, that's why it worked so well. Um, back in the day when you had, you had Johnny Unitas calling his plays, Bart Starr calling his plays, Sonny Jurgensen in that era. Um, later, coaches started to take more control of it. Um, right. But I remember Elway um, getting a year where they gave him to call his own plays. He had one of the best seasons of his career that year. Um, it just seems like, you know, again, you're when, when you're on the field, when you're in the middle of the game, when you know how your running back's feeling, uh, when you know... Um, as Dan Reeves told me, Meredith knew which guys gave him good information and which guys didn't give him such great information as far as what was 
uh, happening uh, downfield. Um, you know, you get that, and, and now things are called from a press box. They're called from people that, that are away, and, and they're called from people who sometimes are getting conflicting information from analytics, um, and sometimes, um, you know, just like I said, not, not knowing how players are feeling um, exactly and not having a feel for the game. Well, I mean, you, you, can, you can work in concert with your quarterback. It uh, doesn't mean you have to call every play. But see, everybody wanted to be Paul Brown, who did call every play. I can remember talking out of Graham many times, and Graham would say, I still hate the son of a bitch for doing that. But, but it, it, it worked out simpler times, simpler game. But then after that, everybody... Now, Shula didn't do it, but his quarterbacks are, were so well, whether it was Unitas or Omaro or Marino or Greasy. I mean, those guys were all really bright. And he, he was a belief that, yes, at, at times he might call the quarterback off, over and call a play or tell him to run this or whatever it was. But I'll never forget, because it's in my book, when Shula, for one of the few times, set <laughs> a play into Unitas. And so Unitas took took the play and threw an interception. Came back to the bench and told Shula, the next goddamn time you call a play like that, save it for yourself. Told him off right in front of all the other players. <laughs> Shula didn't call anything for the rest of the season. But <laughs> they, they, it's a, what's the old line? It's a copycat league. Every coach wants to be an offensive coordinator and then a head coach calling every play. And where, where, where did it get certain coaches? Look, look, at, look at some of the coaches that have been fired that called them, were head coaches and still called their own plays. I mean, you can't... The head coach is over the whole operation. He's got to be able to listen on his headset to what the defense is being called and what the offense is being called. And yet, you have a coach that wants to call all the plays, like Dallas's coach. Anything he called into me, I'd, I'd say, please turn it off. Well, let's talk about uh, the Cowboys, though. They've had a resurgence. Dak Prescott has played possibly the best football of his career over the past few weeks. And, you know, we've, we've kind of you know, criticize the season quite a bit, but it's going to be mostly remembered for its playoffs. Um, so are there any teams that you're seeing now or any kind of things you could see happening in the playoffs that could uh, that could be exciting? Well, Dallas to me is a, a wild card. I don't mean that, that they, they will become the wild card uh, because you really don't know. I mean, they have some terrific players. At, at, at really a wide receiver at quarterback and at, at uh, defensive ends. I mean, they're, they're, they are literally superstars. And I think Dak has really come into his own this year and, and really performed, uh, especially, I mean, Dallas should have won the game in Philly, and they didn't. Uh, and it was very, very close. That was one of my picks as one of the best games of the year. Besides the Buffalo game, Philly's been involved in two or three games that went right down to the wire that I thought were one of the better games of the year. But 
if Dallas can get over the hump, now they got to get over the hump with McCarthy. And as I feel, if they don't get over the hump this year with McCarthy, he'll be fired too. Jerry will probably have point his son next head coach. But but they have the elements that you really need in today's game. The quarterback, Lamb, the receiver, and of course, yeah, I haven't seen a lineman better. Although, to me, play, it plays like a linebacker that could play both since Lawrence Taylor. Yeah, Micah Parsons has really, he's really quite possibly the best defensive player in the league and has been for a couple of years. Absolutely. Other than Aaron Donald. We've got to, we've got to say Aaron Donald, but he he plays in the middle, which is a different, different situation. It is. is. And Aaron Donald is a first ballot Hall of Famer. And if Parsons remains healthy, he will be also. But they have the elements. They have a good offensive line. Uh, you know, it's just a question of what's happened to them when the big game comes up. What will they be like this year? I don't know. I I would look at it right now. I see the I see the Forty ers number one, Dallas two, and the Eagles haven't been quite the same team this year, and and they've had injuries. So I see that one, two, three, right there, and so. Dallas has, if they get a home game, although they say home games mean less now, but if Dallas gets a home game, uh, if they if they're somehow lucky enough to get the championship game there before the Super Bowl, I think they're really good there. They're, that 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 place to me is like Valhalla for them. When they get on the, go on the road, even though they have the talent. Something, I don't know what the hell it is, Michael, but something changes. But when they're there, I think they're almost unbeatable. Well, the Cowboys have some of the most rabid fans that there are when the Cowboys are winning. Roger Staubach had this great uh, quote that the Cowboys fans love you win or tie. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but Cowboy fans... You know, they, I, living in Texas, I've seen, they are incredibly supportive of the team uh, when they're winning. So, and that, that creates that atmosphere. I, I agree with you. I think for the Cowboys, home field advantage is still a real advantage. There are a few teams that are like that. What are you seeing in the AFC right now? Kansas City is another team where that home field advantage helps quite a bit. Well, it, it does, but we'll see it coming down the stretch, starting with the Patriots game this weekend. But, but Kansas City, to me, is a very flawed team with a great quarterback and still a great tight end in Kelsey. But they had, they have, outside of Kelsey, name, name any one of their receivers you'd like to have. Well, that's the thing, and, and you pointed out how great Tyreek Hill is, and, and one of the ways you can see his greatness is the the difference in the Kansas City offense since he's been gone. Now the Chiefs won the Super Bowl last year, but if they had Tyreek oh, Hill, that game would not have been as close as it was. Correct. When when I I said to a friend of mine who's a Hall of Fame voter, despite whatever problems Tyreek Hill had, uh, and there were questionable things in Kansas City. 
I wouldn't have let him go. I would have paid him. When they lost him, they lost the one person that made all the other receivers look good because you've got two men covering him, and he still beat them. So look at this. You had Tyreek Hill and you had Kelsey. You had a tight end that was really a wide receiver and a wide receiver that was faster than any eagle I know, flying above or below the atmosphere. I mean, that, that to me killed them. Their offensive line has gotten better. Their defense is really good, but they can't score, Michael. They're not putting points up like they used to, even no, with Mahomes. Not. Yeah, and, and it's a game now, with the exception of this year, where three to nothing is the best baseball score I ever saw. I mean, that's, <laughs> that, that's what you're getting this year. Yeah, we did have a three nothing game, and that uh, the the Vikings and Raiders, and that that field goal was kicked in the fourth quarter. I saw that uh, part of that game on the red zone. Wow! Don't anybody ever tell me of how bad it was in nineteen twenty? Yeah, when when you had scoreless ties. I mean, I said, "Oh my God, I'm having a flashback. It's nineteen thirty all over again." <laughs> And and that's a, a you know another result of of so many things going wrong, particularly in the not only in the offensive line but other parts of football. So I I look at Kansas City. I still think because Buffalo has maybe the greatest weapon at quarterback is is he Mahomes? Not yet because he still hasn't won the big game. But when you look at Buffalo and they have a little bit better running game. I I know they've blown a lot of games this year, but to me, they're the most dangerous team right now. The Bills with Josh Allen. That's a that's a great uh, that's a great pick. I'm I'm curious about the Ravens because maybe they have really. They've played better. I, I think in previous the the previous last few years, the AFC has had better teams than the NFC. But I think this year, the NFC seems to be better, and the AFC is wide open. Well, it is wide open. Although I think San Francisco is the best team, period, in either league, uh, in either conference. But you know, I, I've never seen, in some ways. A great young quarterback can say what, what, whatever you want about Josh Allen. But when you have somebody that's 250 pounds that can run like, like, a, like essentially a halfback, and yet still, I mean, that, that quarterback sneak from like the six-yard line, maybe farther out, where he carried half of the Kansas City players into the end zone. When's the last time you saw that? I mean, the guy is is amazing. Maybe the problem with him is he's got so much talent, he thinks he can do it every time, and that then he's invited into by the defense to throwing the, some stupid interceptions, which he has done this year, which has been very costly. But he he is really something to watch. He threw a pass like fifty or sixty yards just standing flat-footed the other day. I mean, I, I just think he's something. Now, as far as Baltimore is concerned, they they lost their tight end, which was 
really something I think really hurt Jackson. But yes, they're 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 a real threat. They they probably will end up probably getting because I think Miami's fading. I think that they they probably will get the number one seed. A damn good chance to get it. So they're going to be formidable. Their defense is pretty good. They have the best, probably one of the best field goal kickers in the game. Although I'll tell you what, the field goal kicker with Dallas that they recruited, the soccer player, he could probably kick one of 80 yards. He definitely has has become one of the best kickers in the NFL. Um, and that, you know, again, but, but then, you know, you see the Cowboys going for it on fourth down. I hate to keep going back to this, but it's driving no, me nuts. No. You see the Cowboys going for it on fourth down instead of kicking a field goal. And, and uh, you know, and, and, and the Cowboys aren't the only team doing things like that. So I don't mean to single out the Cowboys. But, you know, kicking is at an all-time high because, and I, I talk, I mean, talent-wise, and ability-wise, because one, you've got the best field conditions in the history of the league. You got the best weather conditions um, with with domed stadiums and um, you know stadiums perfected. Um, so you but should. Do you like, but but do you like the turf? I don't like the new turfs. I love those turfs. How many times do you see players with all these manicured and these phony turfs? How many times do you see players, particularly the quarterback, slip? In Miami, the other night, that's all Tua did. He kept slipping. Well, you know, if it were up to me, there'd be a grass field in every NFL stadium that there is. And and I think a lot of players would choose that as well. I thought, you know, artificial turf, you know, that is, uh, that's always been a, a you know, scientifically, they've done since the '80s. I remember much harder on players' knees um, than grass. It's 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 not only that, and you can still slip on it. Now, I didn't know this until I watched Hard Knocks on HBO the other night uh, when they did a whole segment. Get this: the uh, Dolphins have their own uh, turf development farm about 30 miles outside of Miami. I never heard of this. And what they do is they grow some type of grass there and then three or four times a year on these big trucks, they take this from this, <laughs> this dolphin's farm where they, I don't know how many workers they have there, 50 workers? Imagine the cost. And then they bring it in on a series of trucks, and that takes them eight or ten hours. So three or four times a year, they replace the turf with this other turf at Hard Rock Stadium. Take me back to Red Grange. I can't believe this. So this all this special turf they talked about. If you watch the game the other night, that's the quarterbacks kept slipping and falling. Nobody was hitting them. Well, and as a great. Uh groundskeeper George Toma told me, he said the cheapest insurance there is uh, for your players is uh, is natural grass turf, well maintained. Uh, as we know, the owner's not going to do that because they have too many things that go on in, in their stadiums. I mean, you know, we, we get Taylor Swift concerts, we get everything. Uh, not we, but the Patriots do 
here at, at Gillette Stadium. I mean, they have events year-round. All these places, they, they, they all do because they all want to make money besides their football team. It's not like they don't have enough money, but they need, no, not they need, but they want to have more. So these players are playing on all-purpose fields, and they're not going to get it, unfortunately. Well, Upton, I want to end um, on a historical note, something that you can really give insight into uh, because you saw some of these players. But during the season, we've seen stickers on the back of, of helmets, of flags of countries um, that, um, that players have a, a heritage with. Um, in the early NFL, there were a lot of first-generation Americans um, on, on teams. And they were some of the biggest stars in the league, like Steve Van Buren, for example, the Cleveland Browns had many first-generation Americans. Can you kind of talk about some of the greats and um, how that harkens back to the history? Because like you said, we're only getting the last 10 minutes of history from the NFL uh, with those decals. Um, but the game's early days had a lot of first-generation Americans. Well, they did. They, they did. And, and, of course, when the color line was finally broken... Uh, after initially there was no color line, but with, with the Browns coming into the league and the 49ers and even the old Colts, I mean, that things changed particularly for African-Americans. But And the I Rams, mean, too. Uh, Kenny Washington yeah, and Woody yeah, Strode. Well, Kenny Washington and Woody Strode. Yes, in fact, I was there when the color line was broken out there for the first time with my father for the Rams game against the Redskins, actually, and, and that was an exhibition game of 280,000 people. Goodness. But the, the, the league has had a rich history of uh, many people. Stephen, Steve Van Buren was from, uh, where was it he was from? Because people wondered whether he was uh, part African-American, part Indian, part what? And Van Buren never said what he was. And maybe it was different times but many of the players uh, because the original league had, had teams that are no longer there but you know you had rock island you had a team in outside of boston you but the, well my father who took over the frankfurt yellow jackets they actually were an nfl champion at one time and then he he bought them out of bankruptcy and made them the philadelphia eagles but many of many of the players irish italian uh, Hungarian, you name it, were were from immigrant families. So, how about how about the Bronco Nagurskis in the Hall of Fame? I mean, you name it. Sid Luckman from the Chicago Bears. So, all of the all of the players then were usually first or second generation players, and and I can remember one of the. I I think I've told you this before. But one of the stirring things of my first training camp, other than my father's, was at the Chicago Bears in 1946. And one time after practice, uh, my brother and I used to sit on the tackling dummies and watch practice. I was nine years old, but I always felt like I was nine going on 29. And I saw, in those days, I mean, you scrimmage every day. And, and people lying on the ground 
all the time and hit. And I remember seeing a, a wasn't a vicious hit, but a very hard hit. And the player was lying on the ground. People went over to him and picked him up, wherever something. And after after practice was over, he was walking out the field, and I he saw me, and he saw. I think yeah, I, well, I wasn't crying, but he saw you know saw me, and 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 he and he was the one that was knocked down. And I said something to him, whatever it was. And he said something, and I'm paraphrasing. Don't worry, kid. He said, "This beats killing people." And of course, he was a veteran from the Second World War. All those guys that came home from the war, they were men. They 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 weren't boys. They took the game in in a different light and and took it in a different way. To them, that wasn't really hard work, even with all the injuries. Now vicious it was. Hard work was fighting in, in a battle in Midway or or flying over Germany like Concrete Charlie Bednarik, another first or second generation uh, a player. So there's such a rich history. And I know that NFL films, you know, tries to capture some of it, but they don't capture the real history that I saw. Well, Upton, we're so glad to have you share all of this. Uh, with the game before the money, and um, looking forward to chatting again. We'll have to uh, we'll have to do it before the uh, the playoffs, or or at least during the playoffs. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Game Before the Money podcast. Please visit thegamebeforethemoney.com. Transcriptions of some episodes can be found at thegamebeforethemoney.com and are powered by our transcription partner, Sonics. S-O-N-I-X. Visit sonics.ai to learn more about their automated transcription services.